1: Yo, technology, what is it all about? We have eight Decacorns today in climate tech, which includes Tesla. We need 300 by 2030. We have eight today.
2: Just based on the urgency and need and opportunity.
1: The innovation gap and how much needs to be spent to get there most of the spend is not venture it's it's spending on infrastructure yeah. but to support that spend you need to create these companies we need a thousand unicorns and there's about 160 today in climate tech so the good news is there's 160 the bad news is that we need a <laughs> thousand by 2030 yeah.
2: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week we are talking about one of my favorite topics, climate, climate tech. On the pod, we have Raj Kapoor. He is the founder of a newish investment firm called Climactic. Raj and his co-founder, Josh Felzer have been investing their own cash for a bit over a year in climate tech startups, but they just raised $65 million from outside investors to really formalize what they are doing, um, which is focusing on climate tech startups and specifically those leveraging software to make a dent in any number of industries that have pledged to clean themselves up, but now have to figure out how to do it. In any event, I want to have Rajan because he comes at this climate thing, having been through all of the Silicon Valley ups and downs, you know, going back to the early days of the web, doing startups and the dot-com boom, having huge successes and also things that just didn't work. He became an investor for many, for many years then went back to run help run Lyft, um, which is Uber's big rival. And now that has all landed him uh, back at Climactic, which he is doing full-time. And I was keen to get his views on the why. Why has he zeroed on, in on climate And why now, especially given that virtually every sector, climate included, outside of AI has entered into a pretty cold winter in terms of funding, enthusiasm, attention, etc. And Raj is pretty clear-eyed about the opportunity, despite all the headwinds and all the doomerism that it is easy to fall into around climate. And crucially, he has, you know, the scars from past experience. So he has seen the booms and busts before And he's still all in. So we talk about all that and more. Uh, There's a lot of great nuggets in here, including how starting a student club helped set him on his career path many, many years ago. I know you're going to enjoy this one. So I will now stop talking and hand you over to my conversation with Raj Kapoor of Climactic.
1: Enjoy. I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Oh, Bethlehem Steel. Yes. It's Billy Joel saying a song about Allentown, which was next door. All the factories are closing down. Pretty much describe my childhood, which is, you know, a town going through a transition from being a manufacturing center to being really gutted. Kind of a suburb of nowhere, north of Philly, west of New York, but not really anywhere. I grew up as a. As one of the few people that were, I think, ethnic, you know, from another country. Mm, Yeah. Very white and suburban, and didn't quite fit in at home. Didn't quite fit in uh, when I went to India. My parents came from India. So really struggled with acceptance. And uh, as a result, maybe because of that, I went inward. And Mm. inward involved getting a Commodore 64 and a computer. Old school. I think we must be and, a similar age. Yeah, probably, where I I, um, I noticed that you could do this thing, which is create a BBS. What is a BBS? It's a predecessor to a website or a chat you know, program. And all of a sudden, I was chatting with people all around the world, which was super exciting, and especially for someone who felt alone and lonely there. And so that kind of was what got me interested in technology. And then... Spending a lot of time inwards, I used my imagination to keep myself busy. And at the time, also, a lot of movies and, and television were coming in. I don't think I, that my parents got the memo on don't watch too much TV or anything. So <laughs> My parents <laughs> missed that memo, too. <laughs> I think it's
2: being a child of the 80s. I think that's just kind of the way it was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily, you know, become a jock, which was the cool thing to do. But I went deeper into science fiction, and got very scared about nuclear proliferation and all sorts of things going on in the world. But that combination of science fiction and and fascination with computers got me into technology and I thought I would to be an astronaut. So I went to an astronaut school when I graduated high school. Hold up, hold up. What is an astronaut school? I don't even know that <laughs> was a thing.
2: I've heard Space Camp. I remember the movie back in It's Space Camp.
1: I was trying to make it sound cooler for your podcast, (laughs) but it's really space camp. Um, I went there. It was exciting. You go into this really lifelike, in Huntsville, Alabama, lifelike space shuttle cockpit. And I was a pilot. Somehow I drew that straw. And I forgot to put the landing gear down and we crashed. So that was my foray into being an astronaut. Regardless, I said I want to go and be in aeronautical or something that's around space. And, and so um, I applied to a few schools, ended up going to Carnegie Mellon and did, ro- and did mechanical engineering. But when I got there, I got fascinated by robots. And so I worked in the mobile robotic center.
2: Because Carnegie Mellon is like the center really of kind of robotic excellence in America. Is that yeah.
1: Terms? This was back in um, like 1990. And I spent some time at the mobile robotics lab that a a person named Red Whitaker, who became a famous roboticist, ran. And it was robots that could operate in very difficult environments without much instruction. So they needed to be autonomous. And this will circle back to my life in Silicon Valley. Um, And so we had one of the first self-driving cars in 1990. It was actually a massive blue van. I probably weighed two tons and we were super excited. It could go a straight line basically without supervision. And it had tons of cameras. LiDAR was just being developed back then and lots and lots of compute, which is what made it so heavy. So that got me intrigued. I worked on a robot for the space shuttle to clean space shuttle tiles. Um, it was a cool project. But at the same time, I became more social and that inner, inner, t- Social piece of me came out because I was surrounded by other nerds, so I felt comfortable being cool. Yeah, and I joined the entrepreneurship club, and now I thought, wow, I can marry technology with business. And business, you can talk, and you don't have to be behind a computer doing CAD CAM drawings for eight hours a day. So I ended up getting involved in business, and when it got time to take a job. I got these offers to work at like chemical plants that were really boring. I was a mechanical engineer. There wasn't really a robot industry back then. It was all in the labs. So rather than working at chemical plant or Procter & Gamble manufacturing feminine hygiene wear, I decided to go work in telecom in an executive development program at one of the phone companies in the United States back then was called Bell Atlantic. I got lucky because when I got there, they said you could do capital planning, capital budgeting, or you could do this thing called yeah. information services. Right. And I said, I don't know what information services, but I don't like capital planning. So yeah, I'm doing yeah, yeah. that. And it was networked multimedia. It was right before the internet, so this is in 1992, 93. Got you. Yeah. I helped write a business plan for. Downloading music over ISDN lines. ISDN are like 128 kilobits per yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there it hit me that there's something bigger here. There's something really cool going on. And I looked to Silicon Valley where I saw all the coolness happening. And I said, I want to go there. And so in my job, I applied to business school. I thought that was the ticket because I got more and more into business. Even though I'm an engineer, lucky enough to get into Harvard and went there, and there was no focus there around this new internet that was just forming. You know, like the browser Netscape, the Mosaic browser. What year did you start at Harvard? Ninety-four.
2: Netscape is ninety-five. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, So this, but prior to Netscape was the Mosaic browser. Yeah, yeah. And it was HTTP as an open protocol and. Went from like what we thought the telecom companies would own, which is SGI boxes in everyone's living room to watch video on demand, interactive TV to network computers that have an open protocol where you can take BBSs, which is what I did before, and make them into rich websites using HTML. So I felt like I was coming back to my high school, you know, excitement. And since there wasn't this sort of club, and clubs are a big thing at Harvard, I'd started one. It was called the Communications and Internet Club. And we had these alum come and speak to us, which is a three-person company called Yahoo. And he came and presented. I've heard, heard of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim Brady, not Tom Brady. You know, I went, I called up a bunch of VCs and said, hello, I'm the president of the Internet Club and, because I want to go to Silicon Valley. And they're like, oh, my God, you're running the internet club. You must know something because we don't know anything either. We're all jumping into this internet thing. So I got a bunch of different offers by working through Kleiner Perkins. They introduced me to Netscape. I got an offer there. Microsoft, Steve Ballmer actually interviewed me. This is after being in Harvard to be as kind of what I would call a butt boy, um, doing consulting work and trying to (laughs) prove Bill Gates is wrong. I didn't take that job, but Steve Ballmer – Did not take a no. So an interesting story is I remember I was interviewing at a VC firm in Boston and I had to take a call with Steve Bomber who reached out to me and he just yelled at me for not taking the job, you know, for 20 minutes and said, I'm making the biggest mistake in my life. So that was, it was a fascinating thing. I ended up going to a startup called At Home, which is what Kleiner Perkins had backed.
2: Pause there for a second. I just think it's on one thing you said, I think it's just fascinating that like, um, it's kind of there's... I feel like there's a little lesson there. You're like, you start a club, you're the president, and because you're the president of this club that previously didn't exist, it helps you open these doors because just nobody knows what's going on. You're like, well, I'm the president of the Harvard Internet
1: Club. <laughs> and that <seemed> to- <laughs> so that is exactly the lesson that I think it's good to pause and give the readers um, – If you're in a field where there's not a lot of experts, self-appoint yourself as the expert. And then everyone starts listening to you, even though you don't know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, because you're like, they're like, who are you? I'm like, I'm the president listening. (laughs) (laughs) And then you
1: learn because they start talking to you. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so that really did catapult my career, got me into at home. At home was a broadband internet service riding on top of cable companies that owned the the company. I learned that that was an unstable molecule, a bunch of cable companies trying to run a startup, and they ended up imploding and each just doing it themselves. But while I was there, my job was to figure out applications that would help sell broadband, not knowing that broadband was enough. (laughs) So, you know, we made a, a, a music service, That was near CD quality because back at the time, it sounded like crap. Yeah, yeah. But with a broadband, you can make it. And by the way, that was an interesting thing because I was searching for a startup. I cut a deal with them. I spec'd out the product with them. And it happened to be this company called TheDJ.com, which Mm -hmm. ended up turning into Spinner, which AOL bought for a couple hundred million. But that company was started by... This guy named Josh Felszer, who is now my partner at Climactic, right, right? So I met him in 1997, and we did the first deal from at home with a third party content company together back then, right? And that's what caused our friendship. And as we went into our climate journey, which I'll get into, we were on the same boat, and that's you know, and later on, I'll I'll tell you the story about Climactic. So fast forward. You know, one of the other lessons was that I came in thinking I know everything, because of course, I went to Harvard and did the internet club, obviously, and got smacked around it quite a bit by, you know, realizing getting denied a promotion. And I remember the feedback from my boss was, you're smart, but you're not very liked. (laughs) (laughs) Being smart is not enough. And you need to be able to convince people on your ideas and, and not run over them. And so that was a real lesson. And it was a good lesson because then I started a company after at home. And had I not done that, I, I think I wouldn't have been able to really gel the team and, and yeah. learn from some of those early mistakes. So those setbacks, and this is kind of a theory in life I have in general, is that everything is happening for a positive reason. How yeah. bad as it may be, there's, a, in my opinion, a divine purpose to everything. And if you can extract that from it, it's just going to come back and pay back later in doing it. Even though it doesn't feel like it at the time. Doesn't feel like it at the time. It's a difficult, it causes negative emotions, but our goal in life is to just work through those, release those emotions and so that you can be lighter on the next stage of life. And so um, those were good testing grounds, good proving grounds. I started a company, I was working on like a lot of multimedia you know, at, yeah. at home, and when I thought about starting a company, it was it wasn't like one of those things where I was passionate about an idea. It was more like I want to start a company yeah. with several of my friends, and we analyzed different spaces. and I worked in music, and I was like, "Oh God, too many rights issues." Movies too slow. Still, broadband wasn't fast enough. I was like, "Photos, oh interesting. Yeah, people own their photos, and there's going to be at some point a transition to digital." This was back in. 1999, Kodak was still alive and big. Kodak had partnered with AOL and created "You've Got Pictures," where you put in your film, <laughs> right? Right. So I had um, another offer opportunity that I, I didn't work with, but I was friends with the guys. Bill Gross. He started Idealab, oh, and yeah. he later started pay-per-click Search, and all that came out of his overture, his company. He's now involved in clean tech and climate tech, which is amazing. So we're now we're, we're buddies again, looking at things together he had done this thing called free PC, which I thought was wacko, where he will give a free PC to someone as long as they look at the ads on their screen all the time. And those were in the days 1999 where it was, you can make all this money on advertising was the theory. So my friends and I started Snapfish, which is an online photo service. We take in your film and we give you free developing and prints. As long as you look at all your photos online, and you share them, and they're viral, and we can acquire customers without advertising.
2: I re- I remember Snapfish.
1: Yeah, and it failed. It failed miserably. We raised seven and a half million before launching. I got advice from someone saying, "If you can raise money, this was two thousand when it was going crazy. Yeah, raise more money." And so I took that advice before launching. We raised another thirty six million. Back then, it was crazy that was happening. It was yeah. like AI right now.
2: <laughs> totally.
1: And luckily we did, but we spent a lot of it stupidly on marketing. Some of it, like we paid $7 million for an EMC storage box, you know, <laughs> which you don't have to do now. <laughs> no, we don't. We hired 200 people and it didn't work. People yeah. were not changing their habit. They were afraid to give their film to us. They did you know, we were yeah. snap fish and the joke was what's the catch?
2: <laughs> right, right. What year? What year was this? Was this? This is two thousand.
1: We launched in two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah. The world started to collapse. The internet world.
2: I don't know if you remember at the time. I mean, I know there's like thousands of startups, but I had just graduated college, moved here, and it was like, "I'm just gonna get any .dot com job. I don't care what it is. Wait it out for at least a year, and then I'm a millionaire, and it's gonna be awesome." Twenty two. <laughs> And my jo- the job I got was a company called Sparks.com. Mm. And it was an online paper greeting card store. So think of like, oh, yeah. you know, like a big Walgreens paper Blue card. Blue Mountain Arts was one of those big ones back yeah, then. yeah, exactly. But this was actual greeting cards. And so you they had this big warehouse in like China Basin and full of cards. And then people would make like a $2 order and you'd have to – go pick it and then send it, pay postage to get it to them. It it was just bad business, but it was same thing. They raised a bunch of money, I believe from benchmark. And it was like, this is it. You know, we're all working in a warehouse on, you know, painted uh, doors on sawhorses and the whole thing. And then I lasted four months when the kind of bottom fell out of the market, they realized they were not going to get any more money. And they just like slashed, began the slow process of dying basically. But it was just a really fascinating time. And you were so, probably somewhere else in San Francisco running Snapfish. Uh, yeah, we there. were
1: in San Francisco thinking it was cool to be there. I think that we started on like 11th and Market, which was not a great location. No. Yeah. <laughs> we were avoiding the needles on the on the streets as we walked into the building. <laughs> and then it became cooler to be in San Francisco. But the short story on, San, on Snapfish so we can get to climate is that yeah. it didn't work sold it for 10 cents on the invested dollar mm. to our photo processing partner. And then we, and digital photography started to take off, we pivoted and it worked. And then we also powered a lot of the online photo sites because they all tried to do it themselves and failed Walmart, Costco and Walgreens. We did all three. Oh, wow. So we sold the company for 300 million to HP. And then I moved on to become a, a VC. And the the selling story was crazy because The first time I tried to sell the company, we hired an investment bank and it failed and I paid them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Second time I did it myself and it seemed to have worked out better. But um, I decided to leave before selling to go. I got an offer to be a VC at Mayfield, which is who backed us. They lost money, but for some reason they wanted to hire me.
2: Was that Naveen there or was he there yet?
1: Naveen came on around the same time I did. So Yogan Dalal was my mentor and hired me early on. Had a wonderful seven years there. That's where the climate journey really kicked in. 2007, a few years into Mayfield, I went and heard Al Gore and John Doerr speak about climate at TED. And John had his daughter who was crying on stage and saying, this is the biggest issue we face. And what I realized Mm -hmm. is that he's 100% right. There's no other problem that is impacting everyone. There's a lot of problems in the world, but this one is so intractable. Yeah, and I could see what would potentially happen, and, and at the time in 2007, 2008, it was like a awareness problem. So I had an idea that I shared with John Doerr on the stage at TED, like he was calling people up with ideas, and and I said, look, yeah. I want to create a, a Facebook social game. This was back in the days of Zynga, and and we're gonna, it's gonna be like Sim City, except it's your habitat, and these beautiful critters are gonna shrink and die unless you. Right. In the real world, with your camera phone, this is before the iPhone, take photos of actions that are showing that you're lowering your footprint of carbon. Mm. Launched, I got a half a million from the EPA. I launched it. From the EPA? The EPA somehow had money allotted for teaching kids about their carbon footprint. Ah, I see. For, <laughs> for our overseas
2: listeners, the EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency, federal government, basically.
1: Federal government. Yeah. This is way before all the tumultuous yeah. what's happening in America now. Yes. And so anyway, it didn't work, but it was a cool game. And then I was like, maybe I should invest rather than play like, create games. <laughs> um, so Naveen and I and, and another person, Todd Kimmel, looked at the clean tech space. This is back in 2009, 2010. We decided to do a capital light look at it rather yeah. than investing in big clean tech businesses, which was the right approach. We found a company that did solar financing and it was called solar city. And we invested oh, yeah. in it, which then became te- emerged with Tesla. It was, yep. it was actually started by cousin of Elon, yeah. uh, Lyndon Rives. And then we found another company that did demand response, uh, for enterprises to help them turn off lights and HVAC at certain times to save their bills. It was an okay exit. wasn't great. Yeah. And then I was looking at transportation and I said, look, this is inefficient. We use marketplaces and the network effect to like do ride to do jobs. Why don't we find like a ride board? And I found this company called Zimride. Yep. And we led the Series A and it was these two founders that turned out to be pretty amazing, John and Logan. And when I was there, we pivoted into Lyft and Lyft is the thing that took off. So that was an amazing journey. It got me more excited about starting a company again. So I actually left Mayfield, started a company that was in the health space, took a detour. It's mm-hmm. called Fitmob. We merged it into ClassPass, which is now yep. ClassPass Mind Body. Then I revisited Climate. What year are we now? Because I uh, 2013.
2: 2013. So this is coming out like this is when clean tech kind of 1.0 was all going pear, pear-shaped, as the Brits would say. It just like yes. lots of money, worse performing funds all across the industry. It was just bad.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
1: If you look at clean tech back then, yeah. if you take out one company, mm-hmm. it was negative returns. But if you add that company, it was positive. And that one company is Tesla. Tesla, exactly. Yeah. Which was born then. You yeah. can't remove the best performing company. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to add it in. So it's not that clean tech was a disaster, but most things were a disaster for various reasons. So I had this idea of creating a fund around urbanization, which I thought was like Mm. a core trend. And if we could do it in a clean way, it would work. And I went and approached John and Logan for advice at Lyft that this Mm. time Lyft was taking off, but still not a huge company. And they said, skip that, join us as the chief strategy officer and help cities get green We're going to convert Lyft into an electric self-driving shared fleet. That's the future of Uber and Lyft. So I said, hell yeah, and I joined. And I did that for four years. The pandemic hit. We hired hundreds of engineers to build self-driving cars. It took me back to robotics that I talked to you about earlier. It was exciting to work on it again. It was a lot of AI. There were neural networks that were powering our prediction models. So I learned a lot about AI. I learned a lot about electrification because it was clear yeah. We wanted to create an electric fleet. And so what are the barriers, you know, in doing that? And then the pandemic hit and it was clear we shouldn't be investing in this. And Uber got out of it. We mm-hmm. got out of it. Yeah. We sold our division to Toyota, which is the That's largest right. yeah. manuf- OEM. And at that point, I was talking to some friends at Emerson Collective, which is Lorraine oh, Jobs' yeah. Yeah. outfit. And they opened my eyes up to climate tech. Clean mm. tech was about energy. Climate tech is about decarbonizing every industry. Everything else, yeah. And what I saw was the same opportunity that we had in digitization, which basically has caused the entire Silicon Valley to be successful and yeah. BC, where it started with the media industry, and now it's every industry. Same thing is happening with decarb. It's energy first, but every industry. Yeah. So I said, now is the time. I called up my friend Josh Felzer, and he was looking in this too, and he and I started Climactic, which is an early-stage fund that focuses on software companies. We are like Benchmark. We work with just a few companies. We roll up our sleeves. We're founders, and we help them figure out how to build successful climate tech software companies mostly. The thing that we realized, which is interesting, is that we don't believe that ch- the answer to us getting out of this problem is through consumers. We're not going to get there right. by recycling our way out. You should recycle. It'll help. But alone, it's a tiny percentage. We're not going to get there by asking consumer to pay more for green products. They're not going to do it. We're not going to get there by asking the developing world where most of the growth of population is occurring to slow down their energy use when they're just getting refrigerators and microwaves yep. and air conditioning, which is important. Yeah. So we came to the conclusion that it's the 8,400 businesses that have made a net zero pledge already in 2024. And no one has a plan. no one has a plan so we brought on a partner paul hawken he wrote the book drawdown he's the head advisor for walmart for nestle and we talked to the heads of sustainability and they have a they've been making great progress in the last couple years but no one has a full plan on how to get there because there's an innovation gap there's not the technology and it's not moving fast enough look at what happened with the ukraine Solar and wind didn't save the day because we just can't deploy it fast enough, even though the economics make sense in doing it. So we are devoted to finding startups that help enterprises, which includes mobility, get there faster and get there overall. So that's where I'm devoting my life now. I have tons
2: of questions about Climactic, but just before we get there on self-driving, because you were you know, working on this very difficult problem for years and obviously cruise they had their big setback in san francisco where you know basically that accident where they dragged, what the car dragged the woman down the street and then they were frozen and now the the founder is out they've slashed staff and it's kind of like what do we do now and i know there's waymo cars which are also self-driving going on the streets etc but like How should like the man in the street think about and understand autonomy? And is it like, is is it going to be one of these things that's always five years away from being five years away? Or is there like, are we reaching a point where it's like, no, this is actually, this is real and it's going to be real and we're going to get there.
1: So I would say today, doing this podcast in February of 2024, there is no such thing As a self driving car. Right. What we have is cars that can drive many miles, and Waymo is the best before an intervention is necessary. What we have is vehicles that are smart using AI that can figure out when they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And so, what's working today in San Francisco, and Waymo just announced that they're expanding down the Bay Area and they're going to go on highways, which is a really hard problem because it's high speeds.
2: Oh, I didn't realize they're doing highways. That's interesting.
1: They're going to start doing highways. They've done a lot of testing. They're very thorough on this. What they're able to do now, take out the highway instance, but like in driving in the cities, is when the, when the vehicle realizes there's an issue, they phone it back and a human intervenes and tells the vehicle what to do. And then the vehicle, so that it's not blindly following it, evaluates what the human says and says, okay, that's a good, that's a good plan. Let's right. go do that that's happening and it feels like a self-driving car because there's no driver in it with network redundancies now you can get pretty much coverage so that you don't have to worry about there not being a network that's there and so that exists the cars are still too expensive they don't make economic sense but those numbers are coming down lidar's cheaper compute is massively cheaper yeah what powers self-driving cars is what powers ai which is the gpu and GPU prices are coming down. So we're getting to the point where it's economically viable. We're still a few years away from zero intervention because there's just too many corner cases yeah. that are on the on the long side. But it's happening. And it's going to happen where the economics of the interventions are small enough. The price, the bomb you call it, bill of materials of the car is lower, and it all works out. Right. But what Cruz showed is that unlike a car or other things that get into accidents all the time and no one is telling people to stop driving or the Boeing 737 door blows off, Yes, all you need is one or two incidents and the whole fleet just shuts down. Yeah. The, no, the
2: margin for error is effectively n- nil.
1: Whereas right now we have a lot of individual drivers. You're not going to shut down every yeah. driver because one bad driver. Right. So um, I don't think it's going to be taking off like this. It's going to be steps and starts because of the that issue. But I do think technically we are getting a lot closer, but we're not there yet on economics working.
2: Fascinating. Climactic. So you guys just announced two months ago, because it sounded like you, you guys started and were doing some investments while you raised your first fund. You actually have raised your first fund now, correct?
1: Yeah, we ended up doing... Um, nine investments out of our own capital, one, to prove that Josh and I can work well together because a lot of partnerships fail because of human dynamics. Two, to develop our thesis, which is where we develop the thesis around enterprises being important, and software, because we know software. I don't know anything about fusion. I'm learning, but I'm not the right person to be putting money in. And having a small fund the way we do it's not set up to do 30-year bets that require hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. We should do them, and I'm all for it. We're just not the people to do them. The other piece of it was that we start, put points on the board and so, our, so that you can see, you know, we're we getting up rounds. You take that package, which we did after a year and a half of working together, to potential investors, which helped us do this first fund, which is larger than most first funds. Because both our track records and because we came into it with a portfolio. How was the reception? Because if you were
2: fundraising over this last year, this last year has been pretty brutal for anything that is not AI. And then layered on top of that, you have the whole backlash against anything that sounds like ESG, DEI, choose your moniker. It just feels like there's been a kind of a pullback. After, you know, a couple of years where it was like, oh my goodness, this is, you know, it's different this time. There's huge opportunity here and a lot of and
1: excitement and a lot of money flowing. So first, um, thematically, I'll be the first to tell you that decarbonization is harder than digitization. Yeah. Digitization simply involves bits. It doesn't take a lot of money to create bits. Decarbonization involves bits that influence atoms atoms are harder to change. Change the electrical grid. yeah, <laughs> Very hard, right? Change our roads, like all the stuff, infrastructure. So first of all, thematically, it's a harder space to play, but it's even yeah. bigger. Yeah, it's yeah. trillions. I think yesterday I was speaking at a McKinsey conference over $9 trillion that's earmarked towards decarbonization. Wow. So it's bigger, but it's harder. But there was a bigger factor that made this even more challenging, which was the venture funding dried up right after we started raising the fund. So this has been the hardest fundraising I've ever done. And I've Mm -hmm. raised money for companies. I've raised money for funds. This is the hardest. The challenge was that most people, because venture was in such a frenzy, that funds came back and tripled their size and took a lot of the money out of the system and people were over-allocated, and then the public markets went yeah. down. So they're sitting on a higher allocation to venture than they should be as an institutional investor. So most are sitting on the sidelines, and they have, they're worried about a new thing. They want, when they look at a new sector, LPs will take years before they decide they want to invest in a new sector. We don't have years. We have years to make an investment so that we can solve this crisis. So those were really challenging circumstances. And we went to family offices. We went to our friends in Silicon Valley, like Reid Hoffman, Mark Pincus, Chris Saka. We went out and did as much as we could. And then we did get a few forward-thinking institutions that took a leap with us. So we ended up doing it, but it took a lot longer. And it was more challenging. And I guess that was the empathy I needed for the current entrepreneur who's finding it really hard to raise money. Yeah. And so where, because you mentioned
2: it earlier, right? Like, um, you know, Tesla is the biggest, you can call it the biggest climate tech tech success story on the planet. And now, you know, Detroit and all the European automakers are all kind of like rushing to get their EVs out, et cetera. And I know there's been a little bit of pullback in that market as well. But generally, that that kind of, that train has left the station. Uh, But when you're looking at this... Are you completely agnostic as long as there's a software layer to it? Or, you know, there's things like heavy industry or land use, agriculture, like all this harder to carbonize stuff that feels like it has been mostly untouched. Where are you focusing? Or how do you think about the kind of opportunities?
1: So I want to first address the Tesla point. Tesla is not just a Decacorn, but almost a trillion dollar company, depending on the day, because it's going after not just... Cars, it's going after energy, right? Which is the biggest transformation. Yesterday, in the conference with McKinsey, who gathered top leaders in the business world, made it a point to say that we need, there's opportunities that are in every industry to create decacorns. So, in order for us to meet our goals, they analyzed we have eight decacorns today in climate tech, which includes Tesla and other. DecaCorns are those over 10 billion. We need 300 by 2030. We have eight today.
2: Just based on the urgency and need and opportunity.
1: The innovation gap and how much needs to be spent to get there. Most of the spend is not venture, it's, it's spending on infrastructure. Yeah. But to support that spend, you need to create these companies. We need 1,000 unicorns, and there's about 160 today in climate tech. So, the good news is there's 160. The bad news is that we need 1,000 <laughs> by 2030. Yeah. So, we need 50, $10 billion plus funds across the board, including infrastructure. There's three today. So, we need a significant step up on capital, on company creation, and we need it not just in energy, not just in cars. We need it in every industry that's doing it. And there are opportunities. What we're focused on is finding the software opportunities that are there. But there are plenty of opportunities. That go- there's alternative fuels that are happening. You know, there's satellite companies that are being created for climate. So there's tons of mobility companies around software, but also around new vehicle types. There's light and medium trucks that are being used for commercial eV fleets. There's the software to manage those commercial eV fleets. so the good news is there's a lot more capital going in. There's hundreds of VCS that are now focused on it. yeah, but we still have a significant gap that we need to go after, and it's broad based
2: and in that, you know you you were there in the room with a bunch of people in this world um, at the McKinsey thing. How does it break down in terms of mitigation slash adaptation versus we just need to revolutionize industry X. Because it feels like a lot of that has happened all at once.
1: So we used to think that we should not focus on mitigation adaptation because it's taking away our effort and energy on the real problem, which is getting to net zero planet. We don't have that luxury anymore. What we're seeing is that supply chains are disrupted today by extreme weather events that they could not predict. So I'll give you an example of a company. We invested in a company called climate.ai. And what they do is there's a team there that did self-driving cars. Self-driving cars, the AI that is most powerful is the one that your cameras and your LiDAR see objects. Some of them move, some of them don't. You have to identify which ones move. And you have to predict their trajectory so that you as a vehicle know what to do. Right. That prediction is a really hard thing that uses neural networks deep neural networks, which is the basis of a lot of what we're seeing with large language models and and generative AI. This team took that expertise into very concentrated weather prediction for supply chain events. So looking at a patch of land in Iowa Mm. or Idaho and saying, are potatoes more likely or less likely to be grown there in three years? and then providing that intelligence to McDonald's. And the way McDonald's can see if it's bullshit or not is because they can go and backtest those models and see if it was better at predicting. And so that is an example of resilience that we need right now that businesses need because they're afraid to make long-term investments because of the adaptation and mitigation problems that they're having. Uh, with current weather events that are going on right now. So we can't wait.
2: Just on that weather point, it does feel like, I feel like in the last few months, I've heard lots of different approaches to kind of rethinking weather and weather forecasting and prediction. And it feels like there's, it's an interesting area where this very complex, capable AI is meeting this thing that hasn't changed much in decades. And it just feels like there's, that that itself is quite a big opportunity
1: yeah so weather is arguably probably the most complex system we have and we don't fully understand it and it's interesting how we fully don't understand neural networks and how they work and so when you feed in a lot of inputs you know we invested in a climate satellite company that's providing some of those inputs into a weather model that's using utilizing neural networks we're hoping that we can get a better outcome and so that is one example of where we can use AI. But there's a broader thing that I'm really excited about, which is this word that's being used a lot called digital twinning. Digital twinning is recreating whether it's a building or an organism or it could be a farm. It's recreating that in digital atmos- in a digital environment and going to a level of depth that we couldn't do before. So if it's a building, it's like, understanding all the scientific properties of the steel that's in the building right and then the, the the bolts that are there and everything and then looking at the HVAC system and modeling the flows using thermodynamics and then you can start applying solutions to the building as an example and use the AI to predict what's going to happen and what's the cost going to be of doing that so that is a really powerful way to handle a lot of complex problems, weather being one of the most complex, but buildings, farms, companies, there's going to be Mm. a lot of digital twinning that we can do. And this has already happened in the microprocessor space with very successful companies that do simulations so that they can build higher performing processors. It's a lot cheaper. Even in self-driving cars, Waymo has driven tens of billions of miles in simulation. Sometimes using Grand Theft Auto as their simulation environment. (laughs) And that's a lot cheaper than running cars on the street. So we can go a long distance using AI and simulation and digital twinning. I feel like I've been
2: hearing about digital twins for 10 years. It feels like something like out of IBM Watson marketing. But it sounds like what you're saying is that it's real now. Because it felt like one of these kind of buzzwords like, oh, we can create a digital twin of this. North Sea oil platform, and you're like, is that useful? It's not clear. <laughs> yeah, the
1: question back there was, now what? <laughs> yeah, and how are you going to yeah, analyze right. it? Like, you need 15 PhDs to yeah. study it. And now you can run it through AI, and you can start backtesting it and seeing, wow, this is really representative of the real world.
2: Is there anything else we should be thinking about when we think about what you're seeing in terms of the opportunities and the challenges in the market because obviously you have a very specific take focused on software and i don't know if that's like around remaking how the electric grid works in a world where there's a bunch of rooftop solar and batteries and wind and not like you know four giant coal-fired power plants that feels like a big thing or how do you charge all of these cars i don't know if like the electricity grid is something that gets you guys excited or if there's like one area that you guys are like "Ooh, this there's something here
1: yeah, it's really good, uh, good timing on that because this is the area that we're currently spending a lot of time on. So if you look at renewables, they're an intermittent source of energy. Yeah. And just tacking on solar and wind onto our grid is not enough because there's periods of time where we don't have power. And so the answer is storage. It's very large-scale utility-based storage that we need. But there also could be distributed storage, especially as generation becomes more distributed and people have solar on their rooms, they have on their on their homes, they have solar on, on factories, all of that. But it's also not just about the intermittency, there's also a capacity problem. So let's take, for instance, the wind farms that exist in the northwest of America. Um, they are extremely powerful. Tons has been invested into it. There are times when there's a, a large windstorm and there are now more extreme weather events, which kind of causes the wind to go really intense, where the grid can't handle that much energy going back into it. And literally right now, the utility is calling up the wind farm and saying, shut down. And of course, the wind farm is bummed because... They had planned in their IRR models that they were going to be operating, that they didn't think that they didn't have a grid to take the energy that's there, even though lots of homes need that energy, you know, on the other side and businesses. So we are at a serious crisis around the grid. And like any problem, there's two layers to it. One is you need to fix the, the physical plant, increase capacities. You could use different materials. There's lots of work going into... You know, it would be great if we had superconductors. We don't have them yet. But the other piece is around using software to optimize and balance supply and demand, because right now it's a very manual process. And so we're very excited about using AI for grid optimization. And we think it's necessary along with storage. And batteries didn't make ROI sense recently. Now they're starting to make more sense when they have the ability to sell back in the wholesale markets at different prices. Because I I can generate energy and then sell it back at a much higher price at peak times if I have a full understanding and I can bid on different customers that want it. And so that's where the world is going, where it's almost like the online advertising space. And I invested in that when I was at Mayfield, where it's programmatic and it's automated bidding. And we're going to see that with energy.
2: So lots of opportunity, lots of challenges, but that's kind of... The nature of the beast. That's kind of why you're doing it.
1: Yeah, and my view is like people sometimes say, "How can you work in climate? It's just so depressing. Like we're <laughs> it's not going to go anywhere." And and I think you have to take a step back. And this is where I think philosophy helps. Around all I can do is take action. I but if I'm going to be hot, caught up on the on the outcome, I'll never be happy because I don't control the outside world. Yeah. And that probably goes with anything, not just working on climate you know for me it's around what is my comparative advantage and what can i give back to the world i think i'm a decent investor and i think i can help companies grow and that's what i want to give back whether or not it's going to make a difference is not up to me i'll do my best and so i think that's going to be even more important as these problems seem very complex even ai scary you know what could happen wrong but we have to take that view of rather than inaction take action Just don't be so focused on the outcome. Well, I wish you luck um, for all our sakes. (laughs) Thank you. We're just one little piece of it. So um, I'm excited by everyone else who's working on this too. And that is all the time we have. I want
2: to thank Raj uh, for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the pod. Um, It always helps. So thank you. I will be writing about a bunch of stuff this in this weekend's paper. Um, you can check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on the Twitters, or sorry, X, my bad, at Danny Fortson, or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thank you, as ever, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.